0: I tell my kids every day, what have you done to make a difference in the world? Because that's why we're here. It's not how many cars or assets or how much money we can have in the bank or someone's always gonna have a bigger home or a nicer car or more money. But it's really about how you can make a difference in the world. And I've been very fortunate that real estate's given us the vehicle in order to make a difference in the world.
1: Welcome to Diggs Influencer Podcast, the Titans of Real Estate. The show that provides direct access to the real estate industry's top movers and shakers as they share invaluable insight on how to best navigate and succeed in any market. I'm your host, Warren Dow, founder and CEO of M3 Media and publisher of Diggs Magazine. In this episode, Anthony Margulis. Thank you to our show sponsor, Bo Concept. Allow me to introduce to the Diggs Influencer Podcast our esteemed guest, a real estate industry mover and shaker, one of the top 100 agents in the U.S. with personal sales totaling $1.2 billion, a published author and guest speaker at UCLA, and what I find most inspiring, a charitable leader who gives back 10% of his commissions from each sale and has affected, in a positive way, over 1,000 families. Please welcome Anthony Margulis. Warren, thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Came to my sprawling offices. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> the beautiful Pacific Palisades is where we sit. So before we jump into some of the real estate stuff, Anthony, I want to get your backstory in case our audience you know, knows you sell real estate, but what else about you? Tell us a little bit about you and your backstory. Sure.
0: Well, I'm a little bit of a private person, so this is a little bit challenging pulling most realtors you probably talk to can talk for a long while. Let's see my backstory. I'd never worked for a real estate company or a real estate firm before I started my company. It's a little bit unique. I didn't really have a mentor when I started, I was doing real estate development about 25 years ago and started a mortgage company. And then a year later in uh, 1994, started a real estate brokerage firm.
1: Nice. When you were doing mortgage and developing, did you have a sense at some point you were going to start a brokerage? Was that on your radar?
0: It was not on my radar. I really enjoyed doing it. The mortgage industry is interesting, it's rewarding, but I think it's not as rewarding as the residential brokerage. So it's just, it was a very rewarding feeling negotiating real estate saving your clients a lot of money, being very creative. Every transaction's different. So we've been very fortunate. Now we've helped over a thousand families and every negotiating's different. So it really, we're always learning every day and that's what makes it,
1: uh, makes it a fun business. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious, when you started your brokerage, why did you make the decision not to you know, start out with a big box brokerage or try to get some experience or learn the ways of other industry leaders? What prompted you to say, hey, I want to just do this fresh out of the gate on my own?
0: Yeah, I think what you don't know, you don't know, right? When I started off, the continuing education in residential real estate was 20 hours of education in order to get your real estate sales license. In the first year in real estate, I think I got 200 hours of continuing education. I flew to five different states and I really wanted to learn as much as I could because I knew that that knowledge was important. I'm a data guy. I love data and uh, knowledge. And so I just self-taught myself the contracts and four or five different MLSs and just learned as much as I could in order to give our clients the best experience that they could. And it wasn't that the other real estate companies were not good. There's some excellent real estate companies out there. I just felt that on my own, I could have a different perspective to offer.
1: Excellent. So obviously when you started, you had a very unique perspective because you were in on the finance side and development. So tell me about the data part of it. Cause I'm intrigued. I love data as well. I think this is one of our, Warren, we're going to put people to sleep if we're going to go that route. Come on. I know well, cool. but- you need a cup of coffee here. I I'm going to talk
0: to them stats here.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I'm just in like, what do you think in general? Do you think realtors should be more data? sensitive or data-driven in terms of how they become knowledge? It's interesting. There is a great analytical tool
0: that a lot of real estate companies use and it's called the disk analysis. And a disk analysis basically puts in four different quadrants people's personalities. And when I go to conventions and they raise their hand and they say with a thousand people in the audience how many of you are a high D, which is kind of a type A, how many are a high I, which is very social, S stands for supportive and then C is analytical and without fail probably 90% of a typical real estate agent is very very social outgoing and social and maybe 5% are analytical so what I've found being analytical is I've talked more people out of buying and selling a home than I've sold people's houses and so I don't look at myself as a salesperson I told more people four or five years ago not to sell their house if they don't have to when they approached me to list their home. And fortunately, we saw an appreciating market. We saw analytical data that the bottom of the market had bottomed in 2011. And now the market has gone up 100% in the last seven years. And because of that, we made our clients millions of dollars. And I'm telling a lot of clients right now who want to buy, it may not be a good time to buy right now. And I brought that up at conferences and other agents look at me and what are you crazy? Why would you tell people that? And I say, because I believe it's close to the peak of the market, I believe, especially if you're paying all cash, you're not getting the tax benefit of the lower interest rates that you may want to think twice about purchasing a home.
1: Maybe blasphemy because we're in sales, but I believe it. Well, I think part of your success and part of what makes you successful is the transparency and always thinking about others first. And this is a great example of that reading the tea leaves in the market and just saying it and telling it like it is, right?
0: Yeah, we have in front of you on each of our agents' desks, we have our core values. And one of the core values that we have is what is in the client's best interest? And that's kind of like Nordstrom has their one line customer service manual. And if any agent in this office has any question, what do I do? The question is always answered by what is in the client's best interest? So if there's ever a discrepancy the client's upset that's really what we go back to and that really it grounds us and it centers us
1: that's awesome so these are obviously differentiators that you bring to market and they're powerful and we should mention the name of your brokerage is Amalfi Estates and and how long have you been doing it in the Palisades I, I started
0: the company 25 years ago about 50% of our business is in the Palisades And the rest is Brentwood, Santa Monica, Malibu, Venice, parts of the Valley. We have a team of six sales partners, and we have two admin staff that help support us. It's got a great team. We're very excited. We have a lot of fun in the process, and we help our clients out at the same time.
1: So kind of a fun question. So if you could define what makes you successful in three words, what would those words be, Anthony? I have no idea,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's
1: more than the good week. thing.
0: You didn't give me the questions in advance. Cause I a little more spontaneity here, three words. Wow. I don't know.
1: What does um, your billboard say? I mean, say?
0: Uh, I think what's interesting is people say, how can you work so hard? And if you truly love something, it's not work. And when I meet people who truly love their careers and have a passion for what they do and get up every morning, I, I tell people I would do this if I wasn't being paid because I love it so much and so it's not work it's just having fun every day and helping people having a positive attitude i think is really the key to uh it's not three words but i guess passion
1: it's one word excitement positive attitude love it powerful inspiring so speaking about inspiring i want to get back to what i think you've done so uniquely and beautifully in this industry. And that has created this charitable organization around your brokerage. And it's kind of like you reversed engineered a charitable organization by selling real estate. And you've done it on a huge level, you know, affecting thousands of families. Tell us more about that.
0: We've been very, very fortunate. My parents were role models and they gave a lot to charity and their community. And I have been slowly adapting and perfecting our charitable giving model for our company. We started off giving hundred percent from two transactions to two charities. Then we changed that and we gave 10% of each transaction from each home sale. And we let the client pick the charity. And then we realized about four years ago, we wanted to make a more impactful difference in our community. So we narrowed it down to five charities. So we do one for kids, which is Make-A-Wish. Those help kids with terminal or very serious illnesses. We have one for pets, which is SPCA. We have American Cancer Society for Health. We have Homelessness, which is PATH. And lastly, we have Homeboy Industries, which is a local one. And we let our clients pick, and it really deepens the relationship, Warren, with your client by allowing them to pick the charity. So it's not us picking it, it's a deeper conversation. You really develop a very strong relationship when you're spending a lot of time with some of these clients, showing them homes. And what we found is, we have some clients will say, look, I remember one situation which was very, uh, it hit home, really hit to your heart. One of my clients said to me, Anthony, I know you have the five charities, but my granddaughter passed away from a rare heart condition playing soccer last month would you be willing to to donate to the american heart uh, association and i mean how can you not get emotional when you hear something like that it develops and you realize how much of a difference you can make in someone's life when they're sharing something as personal as that with you so it's just a deeper connection that you have with that person so we do make exceptions and we want to give back. And at the end of our lives, when you look at your tombstone, do you want to say, I'm the number one agent, or this is how many homes I've sold, or do you want to say, this is how many families I've helped, and this is how I've given back to the community. And that's really making a difference in the world. And my hope is, with podcasts like this, is that we can get other real estate agents to give back in whatever capacity they're able to. 1%, 2%, 5%, maybe volunteering their time to whatever charity is meaningful for them. And that's my hope.
1: That's really inspiring. One of the reasons I got into this business was in the hopes to meet and work with people like you, Anthony, because I think people that are serving the local community in whatever capacity, whether that be real estate or whatever that is, there's a deep relationship And there's business leaders and thought leaders that are in these local communities. And if you look at the real estate population, the agents, as you said, there's 1.7 million of them in the country. And among those, there's a few that are doing very important work. And you're one of them. And so hats off to you and continue to do what you do because it's inspiring and it's making the world a better place.
0: Well, thank you. We can always improve and we're always trying to uh, make things even better and Kind of crazy. There's 1.7 million agents. I got to tell you, (laughs) one in 20 people you meet have a license, and I think that's why the real estate industry. I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal about 22 years ago, and it was comparing real estate agents, the number of hours it took to get a real estate license, compared to 20 other professions, and we compared it to doctors and lawyers, and there was a direct relationship. Warren on people's view of real estate agents. We've been ranked repeatedly on the same level or lower than used car salesmen, And the reason was, is because when it took 20 hours to get a real estate license, but it took a hundred hours to be able to dye someone's hair. And it took, I think it was 150 hours to become a taxi driver at the time, while it's 9,000 hours to become a doctor and 6,000 hours to become a lawyer. But at the time, it was 20 hours to get a real estate license. And fortunately, since then, they've upped the requirements. And I think it may be 100 hours now or something to get a real estate license. But once they make it a lot harder, I think it'll really elevate a lot of people in the real estate industry. And once they get rid of dual agency, which we're one of the only states in the country that allows the same real estate agent to represent the buyer and the seller, in the same transaction, I think it'll help people's vision or version or impression
1: of our industry. You know what's interesting, Anthony? In in Australia, there's one agent that represents the sale of a home. There's no buyer's agent. Do you know that?
0: Well, I know it makes sense, because in California, the fiduciary duty is always with the seller. That's why the seller's paying the commission. The buyer's agent is a sub-agent of the seller and listing agent and so a lot of people aren't aware of that that the listing agent you really the listing agent is really working for the seller so it makes sense in australia that they would have something like that but that sounds like dual agency as well to a large degree
1: no it is so. it is but it's uh, interesting that if you represent the seller obviously your your job is to sell the home period mm-hmm. so whether you call yourself buyer or seller so they don't pay six percent they're probably paying three mm-hmm. percent they're paying half so you could look at it the other way saying they're doing both sides for what they would get on one. But just interesting. I learned that cause I have a friend in Australia and he got into mm-hmm. real estate and he said, what's with these buyer agents over here? Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> so it was kind of fun.
0: A lot of states they call them transactional brokers where they don't have a buyer's agent and a listing agent, but it'll be interesting. And commissions have changed. It used to be 6% about 10 years ago and with the internet, The average commission depends on the area, you know, that people are selling properties. But on average, it's about 5%. The upper, upper end of properties, it can be as low as 4.5%. But we definitely see a squeezing on the commissions. And what's fascinating, there's a huge influx of discount brokerages that are coming in, whether it's uh, Purple Bricks or whether it's openhouse.com. And a lot of those are using technology to change the real estate industry. And I got to tell you, I think change is good. If someone's going to develop a better mousetrap, it'll cause all real estate agents to have to do things better. So I'm a big fan of competition.
1: Well, that's good. I mean, technology is... It is what it is, but it creates efficiencies, right? And we live in this connected digital economy now, and, and we're surrounded by technology that's getting more advanced and more advanced every year and decade. So... It's going to make industries more efficient. And that's code for disrupt a lot Mm -hmm. of industries. Real estate has been a juicy one because it's one of the biggest industries. And it's one that's been sort of archaic in terms of how its model is with all the layers of, you know, that are involved in the transaction and the commission structure. So it's interesting there's been crazy amount of money bet to, you know, make this industry more efficient and you look at this direct-to-consumer model, the discount broker model, it brings me to, I wanna get your thoughts on, you know, high-end real estate is different than selling a track home in Fresno, right? Those types of communities might be more susceptible to an iBuyer format. A $9 million home in Pacific Palisades, tell me about that in an iBuyer world. Does that work? I mean, what's interesting
0: is, regardless of the models that are coming out, It's the agents that have the knowledge behind it. So I think maybe a lot of the technology companies, investment bankers that are getting into the real estate play, they don't really have the people on the ground that have the intimate knowledge that'll allow their companies to be as successful. So for example, I've previewed 6,000 homes in the Palisades alone, and I have notes on all 6,000 homes. And to have that knowledge base, there's 13 sub-markets just in the Palisades. The average area in Los Angeles has five or six submarkets. So Santa Monica, Brentwood, those each have five or six submarkets. Submarkets being north of Montana, Sunset Park, Ocean Park, Gillette Regent Square, for example, in Santa Monica. Those are submarkets. And the Palisades has double the number of sub-markets than any other market in Los Angeles. So it's much harder for someone to break into. We've been very, very fortunate. We've been the number one agent in the Palisades for the past five years. We're selling based on number of transactions and on dollar volume, 50% more homes than the number two agent. And a lot of it just comes into play because of the knowledge that we have. And we're constantly trying to improve. We have things that differentiate ourselves, Warren, for example, We have one-on-one coaching that I pay for for each one of my sales partners that they're able to do twice a week, one-on-one individual coaching with one of the top coaches in the United States. It's Workman Success Systems. We've been using them for about three years. So there's just things like that. Always trying to improve, taking advanced negotiating classes at Harvard Business School this summer because I thought it was really important if you're negotiating the largest investment in people's lives, it's really good to have that. I also teach real estate negotiating and contracts at UCLA. I've been fortunate doing that for about 13 years. So we're always learning, and that's what I love about it. If you think you have all the answers, you're not going to be doing uh, as much of a benefit for your clients.
1: I love it. You know what you know, and that's what you know. Well, so getting into these sub-neighborhoods, and it's kind of like its own vernacular, its own language, right? Mm-hmm didn't you create Norman Estates? Is that Tell me about that. I did, I did. So it was interesting. There was a property in
0: Brentwood. It was, I guess you could say, overbuilt for a neighborhood. We we're asking, I believe it was 12 million at the time and the average price range on that street was closer to two to three million. So we don't want to say outside the box because that's a little overused terminology, but what I realized several top agents in Brentwood were saying to my client who was a developer, there's no way you're going to get more than 6 million or 7 million because the neighborhood just cannot support it. So what we did is we used data and we analyzed that there was literally a one block area that had very large estates. And so I said, let's rebrand this neighborhood and call it Norman estates. Several of the homes around there had long driveways. They were gated. Some of them had tennis courts. And so we rebranded a a neighborhood, calling it Norman Estates, and basically sold that lifestyle and that concept. And we were successful in in selling that property.
1: Yeah, it's a great story. Yeah, it was kind of fun. Great story. And that's some of the obviously intangible value and value add that you bring. I mean, that's remarkable that you created that much more value. Yeah, so people would come by and I'd say, well, you've heard of Norman
0: Estates, right? And of course, they don't want to look like they don't know. So they're going to say, yeah, of course. And then... You're kind of perpetuating, creating your own market, if you will.
1: Looking for a personal stylist for your home? Check out Bow Concept. One of their design consultants can help you make the most out of your space. No request is too big or small for living, dining, sleeping, home office, and outdoor spaces. And check out their Southern California showrooms in Orange County, and Costa Mesa, and also in Los Angeles and La Brea. For more information, visit bowconcept at bowconcept.com. Email info at bowconcept.la. Let's talk about the market real quick. I mean, you hear all the rumblings, listen to the news, read Diggs Magazine, of course, to learn.
0: Especially Diggs Magazine.
1: (laughs) You know, we're entering the end of the real estate cycle. The market's slowing down. What are your thoughts in terms of the how much market? time do you have, Warren? You got I, lots. Got? Okay. I know you gotta make it quick. You're, you're yeah. concise and you're okay. You're-
0: yeah, I love stats. So, the bottom of the market was in 2011, previous peak of our market was in 2008. We've seen a little more than a hundred percent appreciation on the west side of Los Angeles in the last seven years. 2016, because it was a volatile election year, was a very flat market, and we actually did not have much appreciation in 2016 every other year since 2011 we've averaged about 11 to 12 percent and this is for the whole west side santa monica bretwood palisades 2018 we saw a seven percent appreciation so the rate of appreciation has slowed from the average of 11 and 12 percent. we predict in 2019 we'll have a three or four percent appreciation. And then 2020, since it's an election year, and I have to be clear and say a volatile election year, because there's a lot of uncertainty, we expect that to be a flat market of zero appreciation in that marketplace. The number of transactions over the last five years has dropped five straight years. So we're seeing less homes selling. We believe we're close to the peak of the market right now. And so we just recommend to our clients that they really need to be very, very careful about buying now because when they have to sell, they have to sell for a minimum of 6% more than they bought to cover the closing cost, i.e. commissions, escrow fee, title fee. So if they're going to pay a million or two million or three million dollars for a home and they have a 6% closing cost, they have to really make sure that they don't lose money on their investment.
1: How big of an influence is international money coming in. I know in development, it was, yeah. it's was it been big. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts? So I'm a contrarian thinker, Warren. And so a
0: lot of times in the news, you hear people talking about interest rates are going to have a big effect on our market, the foreign buyers, springtime's a good time to sell. I think the opposite of most of those scenarios. So to answer your question, the foreign investment in Los Angeles, it's actually about 13%. And out of that 13%, the only two neighborhoods that make up a bulk of that is Beverly Hills and Bel Air because they have a lot of the name recognition when you're in China, when you're in the UK. Brentwood isn't as strong of a name to invest in. Pacific Palisades isn't as well known. It's really Beverly Hills and Bel Air. And so the 13% of the foreign investment, I'd say about a majority is made up in those two neighborhoods. And like I said, 13% isn't a large percentage base. Regarding interest rates, because I know a lot of people talk about interest rates and how they have effect on the market. The reality is they have an effect on the entry level marketplace. And that would be Culver City, Westchester, parts of the Valley. So when you're buying a million dollar home and you're getting a $700,000 loan, interest rates are a lot more influenced on the purchase market, but in, most of the neighborhoods on the west side interest rates play a very very small role and what we've seen over the last three or four cycles that we've been selling real estate is that if someone falls in love with a home what they're going to do warren if they have a 30-year fixed program of let's say four percent and rates do go up a half a percent they're just going to go to an adjustable rate mortgage they'll do a 40-year amortized loan They'll do some other type of loan product, maybe interest only, in order to get that property at the same payments that they originally were going to get a 30-year fixed for. So we haven't seen too much of an effect that interest rates would have, although you do hear in the news a lot that they would have a lot more of an effect than they do.
1: Interesting, interesting. So switching gears and talking more about the industry, what's the biggest change you've seen since you started? That was a while ago? Yeah, yeah, that was a a while ago. That was when I had a full head of hair. little change, right? got a great beard. Um, So what's
0: fascinating, I love change in the market. So I'll answer the question a little bit different. We've seen more change in residential real estate in the last five years than we've seen in the last 25 years. And the reason that is is consolidation and new business models in the marketplace. So when you have more consolidation... When you have for example pacific union via their fidelity title arm purchasing john arrow and associates gibson international and partners trust and then a month later them getting bought by compass and then you see telus getting sold and you see all these other consolidation of real estate firms it's very very interesting and you see all the new players coming in so It's good to keep an eye on it. You mentioned the iBuyer model, which is a very interesting model. It doesn't really hit the west side of Los Angeles, but it is hitting a lot of the markets throughout the country. It'll be very interesting to see. So I see a lot of change there. I see definitely a change and pressure on commissions. I see a lot more consolidation. So that's going to be very interesting. I think if you're a middle market real estate firm, you're going to have a lot of issues I think the big companies will do well, and I think the smaller companies will do well, but I think the middle sized companies may have a little bit more challenges in this marketplace.
1: Interesting. So, niche, boutique will always have their place?
0: I think so. And yeah. I mean, they can move a lot quicker. Yeah. I mean, uh, if we need to change course and put a lot more of our marketing in a certain area, we can pick up the phone and call you, Warren, and say, we want to do a you know, a whole different spread. And, and mm-hmm. what you're doing in your magazine with your social media and with all the branding that you're doing cutting edge with these podcasts, you're evolving and you're adapting and you're giving consumers and real estate agents
1: what they really need. Well, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the partnership. And yeah, we're much akin to philosophy of giving as much or more value than we ask in return. And we're constantly trying to better ourselves and disrupt ourselves and you know do the right thing warren i think a key differentiation it's easy to get jaded
0: in this market it's easy to you know when you're writing as a buyer's agent when you're writing seven offers for every buyer before one gets accepted 25 percent of escrows fall out of escrow there's a lot of competition make it easy to get jaded i think it's all about having the right attitude i'm a big proponent of the plentiful mentality and not the scarcity mentality And there's a great book, it's called The Oz Principle, if any of your listeners have a chance to read it, The Oz Principle is a fantastic book, and it talks about above the line thinking, and talks about not being a victim, and talks about viewing things on the positive, and really, you know, life's always going to throw stuff at you, but it's how you overcome it. And I think there's a lot of good lessons in that book. So I really, really believe in the plentiful mentality. That's awesome.
1: So Anthony, on the charity, why is it so important to you?
0: When my kids were younger, I have four children. We had four kids under four years old. And it's interesting, the background story. So I had cancer 26 years ago, and I was giving a 20% chance of, to live. I had a stage four cancer. And back to the plentiful mentality, I was very fortunate getting cancer in that I met my wife, who is my primary nurse in the hospital. And you have a different perspective on life when you've gone through a life-changing situation. And I tell my kids every day, what have you done to make a difference in the world? Because that's why we're here. It's not how many cars or assets or how much money we can have in the bank or in our area, how many homes someone can buy. Someone's always gonna have a bigger home or a nicer car or more money but it's really about how you can make a difference in the world and been very fortunate that real estate's given us the vehicle in order to make a difference in the world. I have a weird relationship with money. I've seen when I was in the hospital, I went from an adult hospital to have my bone marrow transplant at a children's hospital when I was 26 years old because the cancer I had mostly affects children. And I realized how happy all the kids were they were the happiest I've ever seen them. When I came from the adult hospital, all the adults were very depressed and very sad. And I realized the more money people have, the more unhappy they usually are. You go to a sporting event and you look at the first 10 rows and most of them are empty and people are on their phones and no one's smiling. And you go to the top 10 rows in any stadium and they're paying $10 seats and they're jumping up and down and they're wearing all the gear and they're the most excited they can be. And so, my weird relationship with money is I want to give it all away because I think money is the root of evil in a lot of ways. I think people fight over it. I've seen families break up over it. Once a family member passes away, they're fighting over the assets. They're fighting over the property. And I just think it's, I love Warren Buffett and their whole model and Bill Gates and the 99% giving pledge. And I would love nothing better than to give 100% away. Although my wife's not in agreement yet with four kids, but that's my belief.
1: That's awesome. So on this continued and accelerating industry consolidation, what do you think is driving that? And do you think there's a benefit to being bigger? Is it truly better or is it survival?
0: It's a good question. I think, I know I have several friends that work at certain firms and I know because of the consolidation, Without their choice, they've been at four or five different firms in the last 12 months. And I know how challenging that can be for their clientele, for their peace of mind, the disruption. I know a lot of the larger firms that are orchestrating the consolidations aren't taking into account the company culture. And can you imagine, I mean, if you're trying to think of it as a car, trying to Mercedes-Benz and, BMW and Hyundai and Volvo and they all have different the way they operate. They have different cultures and they have different visions for their companies. And when they meld them all together, it's really really challenging. I think the consumer is having a tough time with it in some cases. I know the agents are for sure. So what's driving it? What drives everything? Money. Um, I think the large companies who are some of them are very very well funded. Some of the companies have off-the-chart earnings ratios that are not in line with a regular brick and mortar company. So they some of them have four billion dollar valuations. Some of them are being funded by like Softbank that was funded by the Alibaba billion dollar company. And there's the company Softbank has they basically have more money right now at their disposal. I have to double check the exact amount. I want to say it's $175 billion. They could purchase every single real estate company in Los Angeles and still have money at their disposal. And so they're throwing so much money at a lot of these new models because they have so much money to throw.
1: You know, my background for a good part of my career was in commercial printing. I spent a little over 15 years in commercial printing. And the real estate industry is similar in a weird way in that it's so fragmented, there were so many mom and pop printers and the printing industry has been disrupted as well, but that fragmentation was immense. So you look at who has share and how you gobble it up and if that gobbled up share actually does anything to you. Like Realogy, for example, they own Century 21. ERA. ERA, Sotheby's, Mm -hmm. what do they have? What's their market share in America? I've heard between 10 and 12, 13%, does that sound right?
0: Probably, yeah. I don't know the exact numbers on that. It but might be lower, big, yeah.
1: <clears throat> but that's when you think about that brand and those brands and how big they are. That's crazy to think that's a tiny share. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, yeah. yeah.
0: No, you're right. The independents make up a pretty large percentage. The indies, they call them, surprisingly, a very, very large percentage of the real estate market is made up from the independents. So,
1: so on the consumer side, what are your thoughts on? this sort of shift in mentality where the Zillow's and Trulia's, these search portals have really been consumer focused to, to try to control the search and, and all that. How do you see that playing out?
0: I think it's great. I think change is good. I mean, 10 years ago, Zillow wasn't around, Redfin wasn't around, Compass wasn't around. Look, Zillow and Redfin have so much money behind them. They can develop so much better MLSs and search engines than even the best MLSs around. And there's huge consolidation for MLSs. I mean, there was something in the neighborhood of 5,000 or so MLSs 10 years ago, and now I think it's down to a 1,000 or less. So we're constantly seeing consolidation. There's talk about having a one nationwide MLS just for brokers. So I think it's always improving. I think Zillow has put together some really, really good mapping systems, they put together some really good knowledge. Our role as real estate agents Warren has changed drastically. We're no longer there to find somebody a house. A lot of times our clients will find properties well before we will. And so our role really is to provide negotiating the contracts. Our goal is to be able to provide insight on local neighborhoods. Our goal is to really provide access to our vendor list so we can really save money on, once they're able to find a property, you know, look for any issues that may come into play, and really helping them value why this property is worth what it is and how they can add value to it. It's a much bigger system. We're much more of a consultant than, oh, here's a property I found for you because of the internet is making it much easier for them to do that.
1: Yeah, to be the most trusted advisor. Yes, 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 yes. That's how we roll too, Anthony. So real quick on getting back to the agent population, I'm always fascinated by the 80-20 rule. And Mm -hmm. we use that a lot in our business, Mm 80-20 rule. 20% of the agents are doing 80% of the business, 20% of X are doing 80% of Y. In hyper local high-end real estate, it's probably a lot more, 90, 10, Mm -hmm. whatever. But let me ask you, because you're a thought leader and a leader in this industry, what advice would you give to someone in the 80 group?
0: Um, Well, I do agree it's 80-20 and it's really probably closer to 10% of the agents are doing 90% of the business. I would recommend to anyone getting into real estate to really have a niche and that niche can be geographical. They can really specialize. I know some agents have their whole careers on one building in Mid-Wilshire and they have a very, very successful living just farming that one building. So have a niche. We changed our business model 15 years ago from buyers only agents to luxury real estate and rebranded our company. So whatever your niche is, be as good and as knowledgeable as you can on that niche. It could be first time home buyers. It could be vacation homes and really, really focus on that and learn as much as you can about that marketplace. Learn what the average cost per square foot is, what the median cost is really dig deep into the data and really understand what the data means we found you really have to look at annualized data rather than monthly or quarterly because monthly or quarterly is just too small amount of data to really drive understand is it a seller's market is it a buyer's market know what the unsold inventory index is for any market that really tells you whether it's a good time to buy or not buy and get a mentor find somebody that You really look up to that has the experience unfortunately in our industry someone can be in real estate 30 years and maybe they've sold 20 homes in 30 years so we've been very fortunate we help 75 families a year buy sell and lease a home so get on a team and be with a top team that's selling 75 or 100 homes a year and you'll get more experience in one year warren that agent will than most if they're, in, they're on their own for 10 years. So join a team, specialize. And lastly, what we really recommend, and it's hard for a lot of sales agents who are really high eyes and very social, is we highly, highly recommend as a model is to over-deliver and under-commit. So what I mean by that is we're constantly running to agents who tell their clients, oh, we're gonna get five offers today, and then the offers don't come in. And so we wait until we actually get an offer in hand. We really want to undercommit and be really conservative, which I think is hard for a lot of people that are quote salespeople. So that's Great what I recommend.
1: So in closing, let's try to learn a little bit more about Anthony, the non real estate mogul. What are your, some of your favorite sports teams, restaurants? I want to say sports, I'm a real estate club. mogul. But thank I you for me. I, I, I give you that label and it's <laughs> I appreciate true. that.
0: So what do I do when I'm not selling houses? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, I like to travel, I like to spend time with my kids, my beautiful wife. I got very lucky and yeah, I'm a private person. That's all we're gonna get. <laughs> <laughs> One thing, I really enjoy talking to other people and learning about them because I don't enjoy talking about myself much. I don't do social media. I know I, I should be doing more social media. You know, it's interesting, the average age in real estate is 70 years old, and I think there's a huge shift in the next 10 years where if the average age of real estate agents are 70, but the average age of a consumer is 25 or 30, and those 70-year-olds are not in touch with Instagram and all the other posting and the social media and how they want to receive their information, there's a huge opportunity there for people getting in the business. So that'll be very, very interesting to see.
1: Yeah, agreed. All right. So thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us at the Diggs Influencer Podcast. We appreciate your time, your wonderful, wonderful thoughts, and thanks for sharing.
0: You're welcome, Warren.
1: I appreciate it. Anytime. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they reach you? Our uh, website's probably the
0: best way, and that's Amalfi Estates, like the Amalfi Coast in Italy. So that's A-M-A-L-F-I Estates, E-S-T-A-T-E-S. Dot com. and I'd love to help any of your listeners or even fellow agents. They're happy to call me at my office. I'm very accessible and I would love to help any other real estate agent use the same model of the 10% giving. We've learned a lot over the last four years and I'm happy to, it'll definitely help not only your business, but it'll help your community. It'll help you retain more agents if you have a team and it, selfishly, it'll make you feel good. So happy to do that.
1: Awesome. Thanks again, Anthony. You're welcome. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you found some value. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review. Find us on iTunes and your favorite podcast provider. Until next time.